You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is On Principle, and I am here with Professor Chaim Seyman, who is, sits in the chair, occupies the chair of Jewish law in the Villanova Law School. Chaim, it's been too long, too long since we've uh, actually interacted with each other face-to-face, so to speak, on Zoom. Um, I know that uh, you're always busy with, with conquering some new area of, of, of Jewish thought and teaching. Uh, but I understand that the, what you've conquered just recently was perhaps uh, uh, conquering the limits of your own body's ability to push forward uh, on a, you just finished last week, and that's why we couldn't record last week, um, a, a real important bike ride, right? You want to, why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Thank you, Rabbi. It's, uh, it's great to be back with you. And um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm a a middle-aged, you know, short, schlubby Jewish guy um, uh, who, you know, spent most of his life and probably still is, uh, you know, a bit overweight and out of shape. But the past few years have gotten into cycling or biking. Um, And uh, this year, for the first time, I did the the High Lifeline, uh, or what's called Bike for High, which is a a Tzaka charity ride. Um, that supports um, Camp Simcha and, and, and High Lifeline and a number of the causes uh, associated with that organization. Um, it was a 108-mile ride. With, uh, it was in the, in, the, in the mountains, in the Catskills, uh, with you know, considerable climbing. And uh, roughly 600 riders participated. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. And it really got me thinking about uh, some issues that have been kind of percolating in the back Uh-oh. of my head. Okay, but before you get to that, let me just marvel at what you say, Shalabi, overweight. You did 108 miles in one day? Yes. 108 miles in one day. You know, on now, the, now um, the biker, the biker in me will tell you that it's the almost uh, 7,800 feet climbing that's important too. Uh, I see. You know, on the LI double, you know, on, on you know, on, on the Long Island uh, Expressway, you you don't get to do 108 miles in one day. It takes you about, uh, you know, 10 hours to get 108 miles from one end to the other. So you were able to go in the Catskills starting in the morning and you did 108 miles on your, on your bike. And uh, how long did it take you to finish that route? Uh, on the bike was about seven hours. Seven hours. And obviously you had to pace yourself to be able to do that. Yeah, and uh, they have rest stops and, you know, and, and they do a great, a great job with it. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. I've been trained to be fair. I've been training most of the summer. So I've been doing rides of 40, 50, and 60 pretty routinely. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's great. Look, I, you know, when I go on my recumbent bike uh, here or at the gym, I do about 30 miles or 30 something miles, but I know that's a lot different than actually being out there in the hills and the Catskills. So basically this was for you, obviously beforehand, you had people donate uh, on your behalf. And this way you were able to raise money uh, for an, a great cause. And I think High Lifeline, the way I understand it, is a, uh, it's an institution that helps support children with terminal cancer and, or, or other types of uh, terrible incurable diseases, giving them some sort of respite and helping their parents out and being able to like to make a wish, so to speak, society. So yeah, that, I, the core of it is Camp Simcha, which, which exactly as you said, and then they've their success, they've expanded into other programs for slightly different audiences, um, you know, some mental health things, uh, other forms of illnesses, and also helping uh, people and parents uh, year out. Okay, so now that you've, now that I understand the enormity of what you've accomplished, but as any thinking Jew, it got you thinking about something even bigger than your accomplishment, and what was that? It, it did, and, um, and you, you know, the ride, let me tell you a little bit about the ride, and, and really compare it to some other rides I've been on. Um, and it really got me thinking about uh, the nature of the Fermi community, or at least certain parts of the Fermi community. So I think it's fair to say that Bike for High and the High Lifeline largely sits in, in some pocket of what we'll call the Haredi world. Or certainly that's where it's anchored. Not every rider was from that world. I am not from that world. Uh, but that's sort of, you know, its managerial base and its, its, its target audience to some degree uh, comes from, from that world. Um, so and, there, were, there were no female uh, bikers. No, they, they do have a separate one. Um, I think it's called something slightly different uh, for, for women. 
Uh, this was an all-male rider event, although there were plenty of women uh, running it. So I want to talk about just as a ride, as an event, the level of sophistication was far beyond any other ride I've been at, being a Jewish-themed ride, or, you know, I've also gone on, you know, we'll call for lack of a better word, secular rides, um, or bike club rides, or even, you know, like American Cancer Society type rides, um, in, a, in a variety of ways. Um, first, the, the, you have to raise, the minimum you have to raise is $5,000. Uh, whereas other ri charity rides tend to be in the $500 uh, um, area. So, so, and that's the minimum. Uh, they, they said that they raised uh, from the whole production uh, over $10 million, which is just a lot of money. Um, so it's immensely successful. Um, but $5,000 is the minimum. And just in terms of the accommodations were top-notch. The organization of the ride was top-notch. The rest stops. Uh, the information, the, you know, they gave you like a full, what they call a kit, like a full, like you might think of as a riding uniform. Uh, all this was high quality, top-notch stuff. Um, you know, this is a logistically complicated event. You're moving 600 riders. You got to get all the bikes up to the mountains. They got to take over one main resort where the things sort of run out of. And then two ancillary hotels, you've got rest stops scattered on a hundred mile course. You've got a big, big party uh, the night before and a big, big party the night after and then staying over. So, you know, this is complicated. Um, and I would say this was one of the most well-run and most professionally run and, and most sort of high end uh, riding experiences I've ever been at, including some innovations I hadn't seen even otherwise. I mean, to the extent that when you got your kit, your like bag, uh, not only include all the all the stuff you need for the, anything you'd want for the ride, including sunscreen and including a, a, a battery charger so that when your phone or your bike computer goes out during the, you know, seven, eight hours, you can charge it up. You know, really everything, including even as this I've never seen is very simple, but very useful as a rider, a sticker to put on the stem of your bike that basically tells you where the big climbs are in the ride based on and, and you know, the elevation gains and where the rest stops are, which is when you're on the bike, sort of what, what you what, what you what you want to know. Um, so in that sense, it was, um, you know, and the start was quite moving. You got 600 people literally all dressed in the same kind of costume or kit. Uh, they stand with. Uh, they start with the Star Spangled Banner, Hatikva, and Tefilas Haderech. Uh, throughout the course, they in any kind of important intersection, they had cops, you know, blocking and directing traffic. Uh, they had sag wagons, which are which are support wagons. Many, many more than I've seen in comparable rides. You always felt that like the presence of the organization. And you know, when you're riding 100 miles, there'll be some stretches where you have no idea where you are and you can feel a little lonely. But uh, every, every maybe half mile, there was a sign, you know, like, like almost like a lawn sign, you know, uh, that said, that, but some, you know, to just know you're on the right path. Uh, and then you constantly saw the, the ride administrators and trucks running back and forth. There must have been 40 support wagons around. I'm sure they know the details. Uh, in some place where there's like a fast road and a narrow shoulder, they even, as riders would come, they'd have like a car kind of trail you to buffer you. I mean, really, really beyond anything anything I've been at. So your listeners are wondering, okay, this isn't called, you know, cycling podcast. Why are we talking about this? And the reason is, is because it really got me thinking of this, you know, we, the typical understanding of, of the yeshivish world, the Haredi world, is that it's closed, is that it's insular, um, as opposed to, let's say, you know, the quote, modern Orthodox world, which is more open and more, uh, more engaged in society. And I was thinking about this ride, and this ride is really as a symbol, because I think many, many things are play, and just the amount of logistical and technical sophistication needed to pull this off, um, including political, right, they had to deal with the police departments of all these little towns up there, um, the number of, 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 of you know, uh, transport situations, this requires a really, really professional uh, managerial logistical head uh, to pull off. Um, and in some sense, it was very not Hamish in that way, as compared to a ride for a different Jewish organization that I participated in, 
in which it was the best way to describe it as Hamish. It was very simple, very straightforward. The amounts of money were much less, you know, it was much more a do-it-yourself kind of kind of thing. And that was, uh, you know, of, of, of an organization you'd much more associated with modern orthodoxy. And yeah. that really got me wondering here, you know, what's Hamish and what's professional? What do these words mean? And, and how does this reflect a deeper understanding of, of what these communities are, how they're changing, where they're going? Yeah, yeah, uh, but, that, you know, before you get there, Chaim, you know, I think sure. that... Uh, uh, this reminds me, of course, of a conversation that we had last year, which was based on something that you posted, which was, I think, if I'm reading correctly, very similar feelings that you uh, described when you went to the Siamashas, uh, where you also saw this great logistical miracle of bringing all these people to whether it was City Field, I think you went to, or some other place like yeah, that. City. And, and um, no, not City Field, I'm MetLife Stadium. MetLife, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, the sport, uh, with the sports gods be mochami for mixing up their stadiums. But the point, though, is, is that it's also, I think you were also similarly moved and impressed by, hmm, yeshivasha, Haredi people were able to pull this off. And I think that's part of what you're reflecting here now. So you actually have now these two uh, events, one that you were uh, clearly a very important participant of, I'm sure, you know, the CMHS, everybody is sort of part of it in some way. So, yeah, so you're, you're starting and, to and see something here. I mean, I, there's probably a lot more organizations, but the other one that sticks to mind is Hatsala, um, you know, which also requires just a lot of political, medical, technical, logistical know-how yeah. uh, to pull off. Yeah. Um, and Hatsala is actually interesting because I don't know, I'd be you know, whether another subgroup within American society has such a thing. And for many, you know, from organizations, well, they have them because fundamentally they're about some like firm issue or problem they're trying to address. But of course, you know, Hatzalah is interesting because there's nothing particularly Jewish about it. Uh, you know, you could say that, you know, Shemiris Nefesh or Pekulach Nefesh, but, you know, and, it was like, and yet I'm not aware uh, of any, certainly in the cities I've lived in, of any uh, other, we'll call it like affinity group, whatever you want to describe what Atsala is, and, and sort of, you know. The, the, I, I think there have been attempts to uh, model uh, private hospital or private ambulances on the Hatsala uh, model, but it, they have not been as successful. And in fact, as we all know, the Hatsala um, suffers somewhat because everybody calls them and they aren't, it isn't, even though it's right. all That's from right. people having their stickers, there's actually halachic issues about being called by non-Jews and sure. how to respond to that. I just want to tell you one thing where I would sort of like, you know, in the old Sesame Street song, you know, one of these things is not like the other. I would sort of say Hatzalah is not exactly like the other two in the sense that Hatzalah really, the, the, the way I understand it from what I know of its history, although their CEO is my good friend uh, and, and formal student, Yechiel Kalish, a lot of the Hatzalah energy was actually pushed by the Hasidic world. Uh, which is interesting because I don't know if I don't know if High Lifeline. Op, I'm sure there are people who uh, identify themselves as Chassidish, but a lot of the Hatzalah and many of the people who staff Hatzalah are even more than what you would say Yeshivish or Haredi Yeshivish, but they actually are even more. In then, the, then to me, then Kalvachomer, right? Because right. then Kalvachomer, um, then Kalvachomer. So to me, these three things, and I, I'm sure we could add more, but they're the ones that you know are at least you know that based on my experience, you know, they they really challenge this narrative, and they also challenge us to think of our categories of what does it mean to be insular and what does it mean to be worldly, what it is to be to be modern, what does it mean to be orthodox? These are all I would say expressions of a modern comma orthodoxy that is in no way modern orthodox um and that to me is 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 really interesting particularly i say when i when i think about the the bike ride in other words um you know in generally cycling is a is a pretty kind of lefty you know progressive culture that's the culture of cycling why that is is its own story um so to see you know a a a firm organization kind of go in on this territory that's not naturally their own so to speak and pull off this event honestly more impressive than uh than uh you know some very kind of some jewish some very left-wing jewish groups that it would be much more their prime territory to me it's just like a moment to reflect on on what's happening here uh, yeah, and and I would also say that uh, they have been extremely um, prescient about what works, right? In other words, even though 
you know, they are willing to, as you say, handle things which weren't really part of their province before, but they realize, they listen to the whispers, hey, this, this generates money, this is something that we can do. And they were willing to be elastic in what they were going to allow to happen. And that I think, um, doesn't that reflect, again, very uh, positively in terms of the energy that's there? Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. This is a, a, a certain type. I mean, it's funny because we're, you know, of certain type of modern orthodoxy. In other words, it is, it is fully enmeshed in modernity. It is sophisticated at it. It knows how to, how to use it and how to, where to push it and where to pull it and how to, Right now, it's it's in no, theologically, it's not very modern orthodox at all. You know, I want to be clear with, it, but but that's exactly the thing that's that's worth talking about because I I think that this is a fairly new development, right? That that the type of skills needed to pull off these organizations or these events or whatever it is are skills that require. Um, a lot of, I would say, secular world adeptness, uh, maybe education, not in the formal sense. I don't think you need a degree, I mean, for any of this, but but you need to be quite adept at navigating that world and different players in that world. Um, and these are skills that I would say, you know, historically would have been associated Dafka with the modern Orthodox community and not with the Haredi community. And what we've seen here is 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 a shift. Uh, you know, one one way I've I've thought about it to think uh, slightly uh, more broadly. Um, is, you know, if we went back probably, you know, 50 years ago, I th- the, the conventional understanding at that period of what divided uh, the modern Orthodox and the Haredi communities would have probably been three, traditionally listed as three things. Um, attitudes towards Israel and Zionism, Medina Israel, uh, attitudes towards secular studies, college, university, and um, and attitudes towards the role of women, particularly women's learning, but maybe you know women in, in a public uh, context um, either way. And you know, in some sense, certainly in my Orthodox circles, we often talk about uh, the shift to the right, and and there's a lot of truth behind that. But in some sense, you can look at the you know, might think of the Haredi shift to the left, or really the disaggregation of that work, because on these issues, while um, you know you don't see. Uh, uh, Haredim or Yeshivish people wearing koba tembel, eating falafel and singing Hatikva on Yom Atzmaut, uh, you know, out in the fields in, you know, Sdei Boker, whatever it is, um, that, that community has become very Zionist, uh, to some degree in its own way, and to some degree in, in just a very straight up way. Um, when we think the secular studies, so it's true that, yeah, you know, well, let me stop there for a second, you know, sure. because, um, you know, you, and I, I didn't stop you before when you said that they they sang Hatikva because I guess they realized that that is uh, important because yeah. there's probably people like yourselves and others that recognize uh, that it's important to uh, f- show fealty uh, to the Medina. But uh, when you say Zionist, you mean recognizing Eretz Yisrael and the Medina Yisrael as an entity that is crucial for Jewish life and supporting it and how it actually supports us back here as well. Right, not necessarily in terms of um, embracing all the Zionist ideology, but right, and the idea of, but, but I'm sure that's what you mean when you say, yeah, yeah. And, I think that, and I think that you can, you know, I think different people within these you know, different subgroups within this broader mass, I think, would come up in different places. I sometimes call it religious, non religious Zionism. So and, and, and it means understanding that the government is a reality. I mean, many people will say the chassidim that I mentioned before would probably look at many of the yeshiva world, whether it's the Degelat Torah and the other people, as sort of Zionists for joining the government in Israel in the first place. So uh, obviously, um, we're talking about, I guess, more than an ava of Eretz Yisrael, but an ava for the institutional Medina of Yisrael and what it's done, and not not to not to be dismissive about. I think that's, what, I think what that's right. Done. I think you know, again, to go back to Mishpacha Magazine, to which to me is a great avatar of of this community we're talking about, which really ranges a bunch of different sub communities. You know, frequently has very celebratory stories about the IDF and of Tzahal and Israeli innovation and things, you know, the Israeli tech sector and all sorts of things that are, you know, may or may not be from, which I think two generations ago would have been the symbols of, of secular Zionism that, that 
certainly the Haredi world stands opposed to and are now mixed much more seamlessly and seen much more positively. Uh, not completely and not by everybody, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, with Mishpacha magazine, I have a lot of uh, familiarity with them. I uh, was fairly close with one of their uh, managing editors, very close friend of mine, and I've actually um, uh, pushed him uh, about what's happening here, because as you say, they might want to interview someone, a complete secular Israeli, and trumpet some of the uh, what Israel has done, but they won't necessarily feature uh, something significant about someone like, let's say, Rav Hankin who died last year and put, you know, a, a number of pages dedicating him to a posik from the, uh, the, from the Dati Lumi community. So what they've actually done, Chaim, I think, is sort of leapfrog. And <laughs> they've been able to sort of like, in a way, you know, show that they have their props of Avas Eretz Yisrael, and they're not Kofi Tov to the Medina, but they actually sort of like skip the, the 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 people that are really on the ground uh the uh, they won't highlight uh Rav Yaakov Ariel they won't mention these rabbis in fact even when they mention them they make sure that they don't give the same honorifics that they do to let's say someone from the uh, from a Rosh Hashiva from the yeshiva world to a, a rob from one of the Hester or the Haredi yeshivas so it, 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 it you know again i sort of find this you know, ugly and duplicitous, if you want to ask me. I mean, you're right. They all, they're almost, you know, taking it uh, as a way because, you know, this is going to increase their readership. A hundred percent using it for their purposes. But the point is, these are these are usable in, in a way that I think uh, would not have been usable, um, you know, um, not that long ago, with, certainly within my lifetime. Um, you know, if the other thing we talk about secular studies, um, again, so you don't have uh, hundreds of, of, yesh- of yeshiva kids on quads at Harvard and Yale. Um, although, you know, in all sorts of ways, that issue is less salient, right? There's been more, we'll call it from programs, Turo in its various forms, YU in, to some degree, uh, various ways of working with, with, you know, smaller and larger colleges, some, some, some you know, homegrown options. Um, and, you know, as I teach, as we said, I teach in a law school. Um, uh, you know, I, I taught a semester at Penn and a semester at Harvard, uh, and I live, you know, in, in an area of Philadelphia where a lot of the, the Penn students come, and every year there's a cadre of, you know, former yeshiva buffers um, in these places, in Ivy League law schools, uh, who then go on to have careers, you know, very successful ones, uh, often in, uh, in the highest reaches of the American legal enterprise, and again, if I were to tell you 40, 50 years ago that there's an Orthodox person who's a partner in one of the big law firms in New York uh, and, you know, who went to Harvard Law School or, or, or Columbia Law School or whatnot and works in the boardrooms of the biggest corporations and routinely appears in, 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 the, in the federal and state courts, you would say I'm describing someone who's, quote, modern Orthodox. Uh, you know, whether they wore a Toromata lapel on their jacket or not, but, but that was what we meant. And today, you know, that is not necessarily what you mean at all. I think it's not at all fair to describe many of these people as modern Orthodox, although there's a certain type of modern comma orthodoxy uh, that they that they embody. Uh, so in some ways, um, part of what's happened is that, at, to my view, as, as the Haredi community has grown exponentially through geometric progression, uh, it has come to incorporate a whole bunch of different people and different hashkafas and different types of people who can be differentiated if you look closely, but who also see themselves as largely part of a unified group, which, as I said before, I largely think of as the Mishpacha Magazine Coalition, which is, of course, not the entire Orthodox community. There's probably some room on the right and on the left uh, that is left out of that. Um, And, you know, and there's other things that are harder to fit in, you know, where like Sephardi Haredism fits in and Chabad. You can argue about all those things. But, you know, I like to talk about that coalition, uh, which at least parts of it. And to me, this is a point. It's not that everybody in the Haredi world adopts these positions. Of course not. But you can be part of that world um, holding these positions uh, and that and, and that there's a kind of you know, somewhat seamless continuum between that and other parts of, of the Haredi world. And sometimes they operate separately from each other. And sometimes, you know, for something like the CMSHAS or things like that, they, they sort of uh, work together. 
And, and that is, to me, a, a new and fascinating development. Sometimes I wonder whether that term Haredi is even useful, because originally it described a fairly small subset of people within orthodoxy with a very, very specific ideology. And now it describes probably the majority of orthodoxy uh, who are, have some shared commitment points, but are, who are much more sort of diffuse uh, in, in, their, in their lives and their practices uh, and whatnot. Yeah, well, I, I guess it might depend, you know, whether you're in the Northeast or you're in the flyover states or other areas. I'm not sure. You know, again, there are cities um, that are like Dallas and Atlanta, maybe even Memphis a long time ago, I don't think anymore, um, that you could say uh, there was a very strong Haredi push. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure if, if, again, neither of us are professional sociologists, but, nope. I'm, I, but you know, I, I would say there's a dynamism in the Haredi world, whether it's true in the numbers yet, which I think uh, causes, you know, a, an affinity and an identification where I think in the modern Orthodox world, the fear is we better, you know, do our our best because our kids are leaving you know our kids are are growing up modern orthodox but then tending towards Haredi coming back to Ner Yisrael or those yeshivas after they spent a year uh, or two in Eretz Yisrael um, so I, I think there is a certain Haredi identification Haredi slash yeshiva identification which is I, I don't know if it's addictive but it's definitely something which people can bite into and that's growing I don't know if you have a similar thing happening in the modern Orthodox world um, where, you know, I don't know. Again, you definitely have, you know, Wexner scholars and you have uh, great stuff coming out of YU. But even in YU itself, as you said, there's definitely a Haredi branch, uh, Yeshivisha branch. I go into YU in the base Medrash today. It looks nothing like it looked when I was a kid. It, I think it, that's it, right. Look, it, the, the, as you said, not sociologists, but the numbers basically say that the modern Orthodox community is holding stable, right? If you, you could look at, there, there are things to look at. How many kids go to those programs in Israel each year? How many kids are enrolled in, in what's classified as modern Orthodox day schools or modern, sometimes they say modern and centrist, right? Those numbers are basically stable. So it's not shrinking, but it's not growing. But I think what's happening is, is that as the, the uh, number of, quote, you know, Haredi Jews grows, it shrinks as a percentage of orthodoxy. So even if the numbers remain stable, uh, the energy, like you said, um, and the growth is, and, the, and the cultural tones are, are increasingly set, uh, are increasingly set not really by modern orthodoxy or by parts of modern orthodoxy that are, that are closer to, to the Haredi world. And again, I think the CMH Chakra is a great example uh, of, of that sort of thing. Uh, I think there are many people who, who, you know, involved in all these things. And by the way, it's not only big things like that. Think of various gemachs, right, uh, that, 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 you know, on a much smaller scale, but I always like to talk about the tablecloth gemach um, or, the, or, the, or the ladder gemach that will mm-hmm. exist in, in Haredi sub-communities uh, that are also a, a part of this sort of series of institutions uh, that exists in the Haredi world, some which don't require tremendous sophistication, have a, 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 a tablecloth gemach, but nevertheless require a certain amount of administrative, yeah. um, you know, know-how and sophistication to pull off, and certainly these these larger things. Yeah, I would which, say, as far as the gemachs go, again, I'll come back to the chassidim, and again, let me, let me you know, uh, so I think you discounted what I was saying before, and it's fine, but the point is by the chassidim, and I think this might even come from of Baal Shem Tov himself and those, his Talmidim, who stressed this idea of helping people uh, who were in a, a difficult situation and doing whatever it takes to make sure that help happens. Uh, Hurricane Sandy approved that as well. The events yep. you can talk about, eyewitnesses that were at Seagate, which of course is right by where uh, the hurricane uh, unleashed itself and uh, the winds and terrible waters there, they were out there. Uh, and even, uh, you know, putting food in, in the hands of the, the first responders. Uh, the Hasidim, I think, in general, they live a life that's dedicated uh, to these Hasidim. They have created, and you can ask hospital administrators throughout yep. the United yep. States, they are the ones that are responsible for the Achnosis Orchem homes. Yep. They're the ones responsible for the Bikr Cholim. Yep. And they were the ones that pushed Hatzolo. They, they, and, and now you're correct. Where did they get the technical know-how to know how to speak the language and make sure that all the things were done correctly? 
the will generated the way. And the will, I think, was something that was not really so much so much part of the Yeshiva Torah idea that sort of like spawned the Siamashas. It was, and, and that we're all biachad for the love of Torah. It was the sense of saving and being involved in Hatzalah's Klal Yisrael. And that had to do, I think, with the Gemachs as well. The Chassidim were the ones that were in the, we cop, if, if, if there are Gemachs and Hatzalah's that are run by not Chassidim, they followed uh, the Chassidim into the brief. I, I think that's supportive. So I don't, I have shown to dismiss, but, but I think. Right, but, but, but here's where I want to make the difference. Okay. Okay. It, it, it's true. The, the yeshivish world that put together the CMHS, and I don't know about High Lifeline, but I applaud what you did. I think part of it is that these yeshivish chevra who came from yeshivish homes ended up going to school because the yeshivas turned the other way, because they had to, because they couldn't all become rabbi and rosh yeshivas and rosh yeshivas. And even though there was not a megaphone saying, we believe in Taira and Mada, quietly and silently and many times behind closed doors and sometimes even in some public ways, they push people to go to school to be able to become the Balabatim that were necessary to support the yeshivas that were being built. And now that these Balabatim, who I know one of the things that we talked about privately before was... You know, we talk about Teaneck being the modern Orthodox uh, uh, Mecca or Bastion. The Five Towns area is really a place that almost in each one of them, I don't know if uh, Hollis, but I know in Cedarhurst and I know in Lawrence, it, it is full of what we would call Haredi Shashuls and extremely wealthy Balabatim. People who are, um, you know, who are, I don't know, I wouldn't want to speculate on what the numbers that they're making, but these are people who have made an extreme, a tremendous amount of money and, 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 and have been supporting these incredible, with, with their funds, up until the implosion of 2007, they were supporting yeshivas and bote medrash here in America and even in Eretz Yisrael. So what I'm trying to say, Chaim, is, is that these, this group that arose that became the power brokers for the yeshivas, um, it, it is not from a chassidish standpoint, believe me. In fact, many of them wielded power despite, you know, again, they might have you know, paid lip service to the rov or the reshiva, but they became a power on their own. And they uh, not only have, uh, and they had that savvy to create those type of movements that you're talking about. Um, and, and I think that that is, I, I'm not criticizing it, uh, maybe there's a, an element of criticism that you can imply, <laughs> but I think that that they, uh, uh, therefore, since they were basically in that world, there was a, a, another part of them, I believe, that were making money in another way, and that was um, through nursing homes and real estate. And I think that both of these things, which means there were high-powered people in the legal field, in the medical field, and other sort of areas that needed a college degree, plus the um, the fields of real estate and nursing homes, which with the aging of America became just a, a, a great money-making device. And therefore, we had a tremendous amount of wealth, upward mobility, and with upward mobility and wealth comes if not assimilation comes, a culturalization and being able to use all these types of uh, methodologies. And, 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 and yet, in their base, they could say, I'm a Ben Torah. And they could say, I'm from the yeshiva world. These are the people that I put on my sukkah. And if I have a shiloh, I'm maybe going to come to them. They're, the Rosh Hashivas are going to come to my chasana. Uh, and I'm going to, and the most wealth is going to give big checks to them. So I think that is like, to me, that is, you have people that are basically in many ways sharing a lot of the modern Orthodox sensibility of a big house, a big home, um, being involved in the community, having the advantage. And you're right, you wouldn't call them Prussian by any uh, sense of the word. They actually want, I believe, the best of everything. Uh, There's certain things that they shut out, but they are in many ways, into their herring and geschmack and, and into their, you know, $300 bottles of scotch, just like anyone else. You would not confuse them 
with anyone in the Chesidim in, in, from the Chesidim at all, even the Chesidim that are wealthy. Again, it's just my take on it. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I think that that is like a different set. So I'm going to defer to you on 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 some of that because I don't know enough. Um, you know, I think I think that some of these things are mergers between these worlds. You know, as we know, really for. I mean, the creation of the Aguda is, is a Aguda between the Chassidim and the Snagdim. And I think certainly in America in the last 30 years, there's been a lot more cross-pollinization between these worlds. So that uh, when you say that the, the, the impetus for the Gemachs and whatnot comes from there, I find that wholly believable. But I think it's now sort of spread out throughout a place like Lakewood, which is like a mix of, of these communities and certainly uh, sub-communities. Uh, your point about a culturalization is also one that in some degree is was very evident in this bike ride, but really that just reflects this other thing that, right, originally the name for this, I think the older name before Haredi was, as you said, Prushim. Uh, even when I was uh, in, in my year in Israel, our years in Israel, if I recall, if you walked in the, you know, Me'asharim, Geula, the real Haredi neighborhoods in, in America, in, uh, in, in Yerushalayim, uh, there's no such thing as a sit-down restaurant. And that's not only because I suspect there was not the economic base to support one, but because ideologically what it meant to be a Prushi is to be Parush. And that this like, this like leisure culture, the idea of eating out, like to enjoy the food. Okay, listen, if, if you're on your way, and you need a sandwich, sure, there'll be, okay, but, but, but certainly something sit down or certainly kind of more high end that has sort of you know, aspirations for enjoying it, uh, sort of lishma of the enjoyment, um, what was was unthinkable, both economically, but in some sense culturally, right? That was sort of the opposite of what it meant to be uh, to be a Prushi or to be a certain type of Haredi. Now, there's probably still people like that for sure, but the point is, within that umbrella that we call Haredi, you can definitely have uh, uh, people with a very different ethos. And as you mentioned, um, if you think of Pesach programs, you think of restaurants, whether in Israel or in America. Um, uh, if you look at the advertising and things like Mishpacha magazine, right. And like, what is the aspiration they're selling? You know, I, I get, I don't know why Facebook thinks that I'm in the market for a multi-million dollar apartment in Yerushalayim. Maybe they know something that I don't. Uh, but uh, the, these new things that they're building, Dafka in the Haredi neighborhoods, um, the images there are, are, are quite interesting and striking uh, for, for the sort of thing that they're selling. And it's, it's certainly not Prushi. Uh, it is it is a certain uh, acculturated into American culture to consumer culture, but as you said, with a sort of very Hamish overlay and with a way that distinguishes it, and that even uh, to me that even um, infiltrates back into modern orthodoxy. There's a restaurant in Teaneck called Hamish, <laughs> which you know serves like the the Chonton Kugel uh, fair. And on Thursday nights, you could go there to late, I don't know exactly when, and get your like Chonton Kishka, which is, you know, some like Zaytar. Your Yapchik. The Yapchik. The Yapchik is a big thing now. <laughs> That's right. So so I find these things, you know, which are definitely not high culture, but they're fascinating because you're watching how this sort of a little bit Hasidish, a little bit Yeshivish uh, culture is now sort of being packaged. And sure, it's cool. And now it's in Teaneck, right? Yeah. Whereas, whereas 40 years ago, the aspiration of a restaurant in Teaneck was to feel like a Goyish restaurant, right? Now the point is, in the heart of, of, of modern orthodoxy, we're going to have one that's going to be some like throwback to the shtetl, which of course never existed, uh, because I'm pretty sure there weren't like beer and chomp bars on Thursday yeah. night. Yeah. But like that's how we're doing it, and to me, that's just these are just yeah. fascinating developments. You know, you know, I, you, you know, Kaim, I I do a show called Rizcha Daraisa, which you know this program is sort of similar to in a way. You know, we're not really talking about Jewish education, but in that program, Bechopper, Rabbi Bechopper and I sort of fulminate about things, and I actually, you know, it's it's hard for me to to you know completely uh, take off that hat, uh, and I would just you know give me say, some Rizcha. Yeah, so here's my risk on this. I mean, I I'm waiting, you know, um, for the for the Rosh Hashivas who have been taking the money to say, you know, what these Pesach programs are really, you know, I understand they're necessary perhaps for women who have worked so hard, but it's really counter to to what Haredi Yada should be and what Tyre Yada should be, especially the Sukkot ones. But but it, it, again, they're they 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 are. They are 
they are resistant. They are there's a cowardice to speak up because there's so much money that's being made, and many <laughs> rabbonim who have a Haredi mantle are actually raking it in by you know being being lecturers and going to these places. It really is this this idea of, of spending so much and therefore not spending on more essential things for tzedakah, uh, wanting to have all the great things and the most beautiful in Banff or wherever it is on some cruise. I don't know. I mean, the pictures are definitely alluring. This whole, and I'm not going to just say Gashmias. It's not just the fact that there's a, a connection to a world of Geshem. It's the investment there where you're obviously taking it away from other things, from other Hassan, from other stuckers, from other places where it could be needed in order to basically have it easy to pleasure yourself. The Arizal's idea of working so hard and crying while you're working during Pesach to be mechaper for your avonos. All of that is like out the window, and the Rosh Hashiva should be out there saying, "Don't call me your 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 God, don't call me your icon." When what you're doing things is really, yeah, is not Haredi. And and I think that there, you know, my, my good friend uh, Eitan Kobri, who although he's one of the editors of Mishpacha, did write an article in Dialogue. I'm not sure if it's still printed anymore, where he was very against these type of you know, these, these these hotel programs. I didn't see the I didn't see other Rosh Hashivas uh, pick that pick that up. And I would say the same thing is true about many of the things that you've been talking about. To me, it's sort of, you know. We can't kill the golden goose. So at least they're calling themselves Haredi, at least, you know, but I think the heart of what makes, the, which is the Torah world, which is a world that's Haredi with Varashev, that Davin's uh, Ashmona Esrei, that's at least 25 minutes long, the one that really uh, quakes in front of God, the one that fear, fear, feels God in every moment, and that's what Haredi is. I, I would say they are throwing up by what's going on and being bandied about in their name. And it's almost, it's, you're right. Look what the Haredi world has done. But I think if you would speak to Rashmul Kamenetsky and you would speak to whoever the G'dayla Yisrael are and you would get them to let their payas and hair down, I think they would admit, you know what? <laughs> I'm taking their checks, but that ain't Haredi. Well, I, I think you and Rabbi Bechop are, are much better position to be uh, <laughs> critics uh, and effective critics in that world. My, I think I have, you know, my, my role is to, to sort of draw some of, some of, some of the, uh, the contrast out and, and, to, and to point out some things. What I would say is, um, you know, in response to that is, you know, I always say, don't look at the norms that a culture professes, look at the norms they enforce. In other words, um, let's, let's take an easy example. Of, of weddings. So there's long been discussions that from weddings are over the top. And every once in a while, you'll get a Kokaira out or something, or some Rashiva Rebbe will send out a letter uh, that, you know. But then the question is so listen, if, 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 uh, if one of these people were invited to a wedding where the food wasn't Mahadran or Glot, they wouldn't come. And if one of these were invited to a wedding where, I don't know, you'd have a, a double ring ceremony, they wouldn't come. Or where there be a female performer, they wouldn't come, and that's how you enforce the norm. But if uh, they all show up, so then they're communicating that maybe in some ideal world their preference would be no. But this is not a norm that they're willing to put, uh, you know, political capital behind uh, to to spend their political capital fighting. And that's sort of what I feel about these things, is that I'm sure that there are people who wish it was otherwise, and I'm sure that in this broad, and that's sort of my point, because the term Haredi has become so broad and encompasses so many different types of people, um, there's certainly these different subgroups, but uh, you pay attention to what norms are enforced, right? So if, if a guy shows up and he's not wearing a suit and a hat, uh, then that is a norm that is directly or indirectly enforced. But whatever you may say about the, you know, lavish weddings or Pesach programs, and I don't believe that these rabbinim were saying this don't mean it, but what they mean is that in the list of things they have to worry about and argue about in life, this is number 53 and not number two. Um, and so I always look at, you know, and by the way, I think about this in every community, right? This, this is not special, is that pay much less attention to the norms professed and pay attention to what boundaries are enforced. 
You're 100% correct. And I think, it again, it really just underscores, the, you know, my disappointment uh, with the, the lack of courage. And I think part of it is because, uh, like I said, like I told you before, that that uvda of, of, of the who is supporting us and they couldn't they can't alienate them. I've been at million dollar weddings, million dollar weddings, I'm sure, because. And 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 there were Rosh Hashivas that were there, and I knew exactly why they were there. And I again, I it was one of my closest friends. I could not not go to this wedding, so I wasn't in a, a position to make a macho. But this was a a wedding that cost for sure a million dollars. And um, believe me, the it was it was it, it to me it's sort of like you know the the taina on on the rabbonim in, at the time of Kamsen Bar Kamsa. You know, <laughs> you know they show up and they yeah they're nichale yeah they're nichale without any comment. You know, th- there's one other thing that I, I think we need to talk about um, is the COVID response uh, of the what we call and again there's such a huge uh, as you say variance between people who call themselves Haredim. but I think in, in the COVID world. Um, that we have been living in, uh, I was very uh, heartened by the emergence of a, 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 like a Haredi spokesman, you know, Dr. Aaron Glatt, who was, uh, I, I think he's chief of internal medicine in Long Island Jewish Hospital, uh, but he beca- he was everywhere. And he was really a, a megaphone in whether it was in Mishpochar and Ami, any place he could, he was really trying to, uh, to push for uh, uh, adherence to the science, understanding, um, and we know it's not—it's an open secret that play, if you Lakewood and other places, Lakewood and Muncie, if you want to say those are the two great Haredi places. I don't know if it was as true in the five towns. There was a a a, a sort of a dismissal of a lot of. Uh, I'm talking about pre the vaccine rollout. There was a dismissal of. The what the the community, uh, what the CDC and what the health officials were saying. Um, how, how do you feel about that? That's sort of like a little bit of a uh, of, of an anomaly, don't you think? So I actually think this is this is very supportive of my of my general thesis here, um, and I think uh, Rabbi Doctor Glad is actually a great example, right? So he is someone who, on the one hand, right, again, if we described someone fifty years ago right, who's a doctor and the chair of medicine in an important hospital, right, you would say he's, quote, modern orthodox. Now, of course, he's not, right? He is part of this coalition of, like, the, you know, the Aguda black hat doctor, of which there are, you know, many. Um, and, and what that did, right, and this is, is, is that it really drove, right, so in this, in this community that we're talking about, right, because it ranges from your, like, you know, black hat doctors, all the way, you know, into, into, into much more to the right of that. Uh, this COVID issue really stressed that coalition to some degree. It was, it was a, you know, it was, it was an issue that divided not between communities, but within communities, certainly within these sub-communities that, that sort of formed this group. And I think part of what you saw, and you saw this, uh, you know, from, from a number of statements from the Aguda and, 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 and like you said, Mishpacha and Ami, is that they're, they're trying to manage their coalition. On the one hand, you have the Rabbi Glatz of the world and, you know, Rav Asher Weiss on the kind of more posting level and reversal Schefter, who, though with YU, I think is at least involved in part of this world, is definitely, you know, in this Mishpacha uh, coalition that we're talking about. Um, pushing one medical line or one halachic line. And then there were others that are more ambivalent and others that were more strident the other way. Um, so I think there's two interesting points. One, uh, that, uh, that, that, that the Haredi world sort of, I think you fairly can say includes both of these aspects. This is an issue that divided it, but yet it's a division that didn't lead to a crack up. Right, which is another way to think about it. In other words, sometimes communities break up over issues. Now, again, you could say there are fissures between commun- sub-communities. I think that's right. But I think basically, you know, hopefully we're over the COVID or over the worst of it. And I think your description is accurate. Um, but, but in other words, imagine a world in which the, the Rabbi Dr. Glatt types were not in that coalition, right? What would that look like? I think it would look quite different. And, and you know, the same thing with, with the business guys you were talking about uh, before. And, you know, here actually nursing home operators, um, you know, I think sit in, a, in an interesting position. So I think Gufa, because 
uh, these different types of people or coalition is that 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 shaped uh, the discourse considerably. But I agree with you that that was an issue that really, I'd say, you know, really drove a wedge uh, in that community. But so far as I can tell, uh, didn't didn't break it up. So I think that the emergence of this like Haredi doctor, um, you know, which is a fairly new sort of character on the scene, and you know everything that that entails, I think actually had a gravitational pull on at least some of this, uh, some of this community and changed changed the discourse because I think that people in leadership positions did listen to Rabbi Glatter, at least didn't just dismiss that, and that he was a person to to to, to bear that message. Whereas if Imagine like you go back in time and like no one from the quote Haredi world is even at all knowledgeable or related or invested in science. Like who's going to be that spokesperson? Who's gonna who's gonna deliver that message in a way that is that that can be nishma uh, to that audience? So to me, like yeah, yeah the COVID, well, there's a lot to say about it, and I have a lot of thoughts on the good. Sure, but, I, I understand, uh, and, and I would probably add to some of these stellar. Uh, acculturated figures who who are standouts and yet clearly 100% Haredi. You have I forgot what her name is, but the uh, the the judge in Brooklyn um, who was uh, I forgot what her name is, but I know she was touted as also this incredible you know right. this, this Haredi woman who obviously went to law school and became a judge and is now meeting out law even in on, on the highest level. And now it's you know we can maybe come full circle you know not all 108 miles, but uh, another sports person. Like who I think you you told me about a in a previous conversation, uh, BD Deutsch, um, mm-hmm. that um, who a Passaic girl, which is also a, a city that I think was built on Haredi. I think Passaic is sort of like a interesting example versus yeah. Teaneck. Yeah. It's sort of in the same area, but Passaic was built with Haredi genes. You know, yeah. uh, it, it, it really is even, you know, you, it really is a Haredi place. And BD Deutsch is a, is a Passaic girl who... Married to an Atlanta boy. Ah, uh, okay. That's that's your hometown, right? My hometown, yeah. Yeah. So that's where the Deutsch comes from, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And BD is, 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 is able to really be an incredible model of what it means to be a Haredi woman and to be out there uh, in, in a place where, again, once again, I'm going to tell you that Sidon would never uh, harbor such a thing because to them, women, as much as they do, you don't want to put them in a public situation. Here you have a situation where a woman is out there publicly winning awards and we are uh, applauding her. We're not just right. saying- so, so I think that's a critical point. So I don't know her, you know, just from from what's been written up. It's fascinating personality, fascinating story. Um, you know, and but I think that exactly, I don't even know whether she's Haredi or not, though I, I've seen in printer described this way. But but that's sort of the point. Had I described you to you, and I we go back in time to when I was a kid, and I say, listen, there's going to be a woman who's an Orthodox woman who's a marathon runner and is on ad campaigns uh, for, for 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 sports apparel companies. Um, so first you would have probably, and she's a mother of five. So you would have said that's impossible. And I would have agreed. But then if I would have pushed you and said, okay, this person is, you know, you know, sort of modern orthodox, maybe even at the, at the left edge of modern orthodox. Because like EF sure, impossible. And Dafka, the world of sports, you know, like you said, in some ways, the, the, the judge is, is very hard to imagine, but yet somehow imagine. But the world of sports, which, you know, and here we are, right, uh, in, in 2020, 2021, where uh, this woman and, um, is, has accomplished things that are mind-boggling, uh, certainly to me, um, and I think to most people who, you know, the, the, um, the marathon runner seems to be just, you know, and has accomplished things. And, you know, I, I would just say there, the, to me, the, and that's one of the reasons why it's the last uh, event in the Olympics, you know, because it really is the, the symbol of, I know what you did was incredible. I mean, obviously oh, the endurance, but, but, but the symbol of perseverance and the idea of operating within a space where the competition is not even as significant as finishing and doing it. I mean, I remember images of uh, the Olympics, the final Olympics uh, in many years past, where, of course, the last event is the marathon runner entering the stadium. And, mm-hmm. and in a way, that... That is always the cherry on the cake. That's that's the Olympic ideal. And here she is 
And here she is. Here she is, the number one finisher, I think, in the Jerusalem Marathon among among Israelis. They had other people from other countries. She was the number one Israeli runner. So it's, 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 I mean, you know, if we talk about her specifically, it's an amazing accomplishment. But to some degree, you, you know, it's, it's what you said before. It's how the community is responding, right? That the community, you know, now you can get debates. Is she Haredi? Is she not? I don't know. I don't really care. But the point is, uh, she certainly comes from that world to some degree, uh, or from a certain type of it, like say, Passaic Atlanta. Um, and uh, and the community is is celebrating this as Jewish achievement, as from woman achievement. Um, uh, and I think that would have been unthinkable really not that long ago. It would be unthinkable that there could be such a person. And it would be unthinkable that if there was such a person who would be embraced uh, by the community in the way uh, this individual is embraced. And I think that's a, that's a great, again, she's very, very unique and really one in a million. To some degree, what I said before, the Haredi law partner is a more common, less impressive in some ways, but a more common exemplar of what I think is the same phenomenon of someone who succeeds in a way in the sort of broader world at its highest levels, in a way that was unimaginable to be consistent with what we think of as ultra-Orthodox or Haredi or whatnot, not that long ago. And today is, in the case of the law partner, you know, very common in the con- or the doctor common enough. In the case of BD Deutsch, obviously uncommon because of the level of skill and talent, but still uh, still a possibility. In some ways, maybe we need new words, right? Because as I said, if you know, if Haredi describes the majority of orthodoxy, right, then maybe it's no longer a useful term because it's too broad. And, and, definitely, and I would say it definitely is. You know, uh, the 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 men and women who are engaged in Shatchanim, whether it's in Why You Connect or the Rebetzins or any part of these, uh, 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 they have all these different types of names, right. uh, connect with people, uh, yeshivish world, whatever it is, they have on on your resume, you have to fill out a, a, a questionnaire. And I think there's about 20 different subcategories. You know, there is a modern chassidish, there is, uh, you know, uh, there is modern yeshivish, there's, there's uh, yeshivish machmir, there's yeshivish modern, and then you have little asterisks, will, uh, will watch TV at home, but won't go out to the movies. And and and, and right. so so I think that sophistication is already there. I think it's it's the shatchanim know it. Uh, yep. the, the people who are in the trenches know yep. that there isn't one size fits all. The brush is really uh, inadequate uh, to cover everyone. And maybe you're right. Maybe you know this this idea of of grouping together. Uh, it, 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 to some degree, the group together is because I think many of these people do see, though they understand these fine subdivisions that you'll put on the on the shidduch forms correctly, as you know. But I think I think right as I said, mishpach is a coherent segment in the community. It has variations, right? But it it, it reflects something I think both is and sees it sees itself as belonging to the same broader group, though of course that they're subdivisions. And that and that's what to me is is interesting that that group can contain a lot of different uh, different things. Now you could flip it, and, and maybe another time, or maybe with another guest. Yes, okay. So what does hold that together? In other words, I, I guess the, the interesting question is if we could talk about all the all the different types of quote, Haredi Jews, you can be and still be considered in that group, then say, okay, what are its boundaries and why are they where they are? Which maybe is is another topic. I'll just comment one thing on what you said about the overflow, how there's sort of like a love of Haredi aspect. I think you see uh, uh, and I'm going to use a a, a streaming service to indicate that. Um, of course, the program was 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 already a, a a very popular one in Israel, but I think it really got worldwide popularity in North America. Was of course Stissel, yep. which through Netflix buying it and uh, distributing it. I mean, these these Stissel players became uh, household names with everyone. People loved watching it and. And and I think you, you, clearly it's it, that's not North America Haredi, uh, no, which no, that's so, really, that's which, a, that is really even a more Israeli Haredi. And whether it's accurate or not, it, what I think it, it accomplished is that not that I want to be a Haredi, but they are people, and there was something about a humanization that I think all the noble stories and uh, stories of tzaddikim didn't accomplish. Uh, Chaim, I, I'm, I'm happy that we went from the uh, 
what was the city that it started in that you you started your uh, where was the starting line what what little so hamlet the starting in the line was in vernon new york uh, new jersey i'm sorry it's really supposed to be in the camp itself but because of covid and of course the the kids are immunocompromised, so they kept it separate. But I think ideally and historically, it starts and ends in the camp. And Mir Sashem, that'll be the, the story. So you started, but you, so we've gone from Vernon up into the Catskills. Into the Catskills. Uh, right? Down to Atlanta. Down to Atlanta, taking us back all the way through uh, all of Netflix choices, Yerushalayim and back. Thanks, Rukhayim. Uh It was it, always, it was a, uh, it was a Six Flags roller coaster ride in some ways. But uh, I'm, I'll always grab a chance to get an e-ticket with you anytime. Sure. And, and one thing, next time, I think we have to talk actual Torah. So, uh... <laughs> all right. Be well, Chaim. We can always do that off, off the mic. Be well. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Thank you again. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.